This episode of Curious with Josh Peck is brought to you by Amazon Alexa Skills. Find your favorite skills today. Just say, Alexa, what are your popular skills on any Alexa-enabled device? Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Yo, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I'm Josh Peck. This is my podcast, Curious. You are the listener. And boy, are you great. I'm just a fucking fan of each and every one of you. Seriously. And I know what you're thinking. How? How? There's no possible way. I mean, there's got to be dozens of us, if not hundreds. But the reality is, each and every one of you means a lot to me. Because this podcast means a lot to me. And the fact that you listen, that you stream it, that you take time during your workout... Or I hope that it's like escape from the mundane, from you cleaning your house or, or you working or, or I don't know what. But I know that's what podcasts are for me. It's an it's a escape. It's like, let me go be with my friends um, in my own little world and I'm going to learn. I'm going to be educated. Maybe have a couple laughs. Maybe shed a couple tears and have a moment. So if um, I have facilitated any of those things for you, I'm honored And I feel very lucky to do so. And if I have facilitated none of those things for you, well, um, give me a chance. Uh, Keep listening. And you never know. Some crazy could happen. Anyway, hope you're having a great week. Um, My week is very good. My wife is very pregnant. My life is very good. And yet, I find moments in which to be (laughs) depressed. Isn't that just the truth? Um, But that's life, right? I mean, God, I heard Jim Carrey on Bill Maher the other day and he's like, I don't know if he said emotions or I think he said happiness is the weather. You know, it just kind of comes and goes and you just try to live in a sunny place. Am I right? Um, But it's changing. It's ever changing. And I think we're all going through it and we all have like versions of, of our, of our lives and some of us better than others. And each of us separate and different and unique unto ourselves. And yet I imagine that we all sort of have these weird highs and lows and moments in which where we just can't exactly pinpoint why we feel a bit off or not ourselves or why we're just a little bummed out at the way the world works. And you know what? That's all right. You're allowed. It's life. Welcome. I think that people, like, you know how we look at happy people or people that are content and, or at least I do this. Why am I talking about you? Let me, let me put this in the first person because I have no idea what goes on with anyone but me. But if you're anything like me, um, when I look at those people and I think, wow, like how does that guy seem stoked? He just seems completely content and happy. I think he has the same feelings I do. Maybe he just talks about it less. Like he's just okay. He, he's understood. He's understood the rules of engagement for a longer time than I. And so he's not surprised when he wakes up on a day or two during the month where he just feels a little off and a little uneasy um, or uncomfortable or in fear or expectation or resentment of the past or fear of the future. You know, I think that is incredibly human and... uh, I don't think any of us are unique in those feelings, but you know, that's like the whole thing too, right? Cause we all know we're all so special because our moms told us we're, oh God, we've got so much potential and no, nobody's like us. 
Nobody's as funny or talented or sweet or kind or athletic or or attractive as we are because our moms said, and our dads, moms more. And that sure does make me feel different than you when probably the secret is is that I should just feel like the whole world because we're all living it. Sorry for this like weird pseudo soapbox bullshit psychology philosophy rant this early in the morning or whenever you're listening to this. I, I, I realize I have no real pedigree to talk about much, but then again, here you are listening. So why do I feel the need to apologize? Why can't I just embrace it? I'll t- I'm going to talk to my shrink about it. His name is Tom, my therapist. I'm a big fan. 15 plus years together. On and off, mostly on, but I think we're making progress. You might disagree and you wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> um, oh man. Yeah, it's all good, yo. I I think I'm pretty sure it's all good. It's just part of life. But um we can get through it together. Anyway, Dan Fogelman is on the show today. Forgive me cuz I'm going to I'm going to wax about Dan Fogelman for a second cuz I'm just a, such a huge fan of this human. I mean, look, I'll be honest, in this business, anyone who's in a position of power who like keeps an eye out for you and like continues on a regular basis to sort of give you a hand up and believe in you is such a a treasure and a rarity. And that's what Dan Fogelman has done for me over the last couple of years. Um, I auditioned for his movie that he directed called Danny Collins, wrote and directed with um, Al Pacino, heard of him, Annette Bening, heard of her, Bobby Cannavale, heard of him, Christopher Plummer, Sound of Music, heard her or seen it. Um, yeah. And I auditioned for that movie. He cast me in it. I got to do like three scenes with Pacino, which was like a great honor to be with the God. And, um, and since then he cast me in his TV show, grandfathered and put me on a show pitch. And he's just, um, a mensch and has been so good to me. And I know that I am, um, not special in that because he's been so good to so many people. He's incredibly talented and he has a new movie coming out called Life Itself, which comes out September 21st. Watch that shit. Oscar Isaac, Annette Benning, uh, Olivia Wilde, just a gang of famous people. Famous people love Dan Fogelman. They just want to work for him and I don't blame them. Um, I'm sure Fogelman could assemble a sick dinner party, like sick. Anyway, um, he also has the show This Is Us on NBC that he created. So Dan's crushing it. He was nice enough to sit down with me for an hour. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, guys. Enjoy. Banderas is shooting in a Maldivar movie in Spain. It's like, it's like fucking the worst time. I got my like two main guys in Europe. Like literally like I can't get them out all the time. So they're doing a lot of stuff, but they can't get there this weekend because they're both shooting. Right. So yeah. Um, Dude. Josh, I'm so impressed. I'm very fancy. You are very fancy. Is this, (laughs) is this loud enough? Yeah. Holding it right here. These levels. Yeah. These are goals. Gold levels. Um, you're, you're the goal. You're having a moment. I want to know what this feels like. I want to know. Give me the play-by-play. Of my life? Do you feel enough in this moment? I would gather maybe not. No. Right? You don't, you don't really. No. I wish no. I wish you could. It's like I've worked really hard for a really long time. and, and uh, 
but it's it's a tremendous amount of work and pressure and stress and so you don't really get a chance to enjoy very much because it's so busy and and you actually always feel like you're losing and it's like exciting and nice when people say like complimentary things like that but i'm waiting for a bad review or all of a sudden you're like you're getting a show that you're like holy crap i never expected this thing to get like any Emmy nominations or nominations for awards, then suddenly you're disappointed when one of your actors doesn't get one. Um, so the right. goalposts keep moving, and it's just always it's like an endless slog. And do you ever? What is? I got to interview Phil Rosenthal. Yeah. And you know, I, I said to him, I said, when you do Everybody Loves Raymond for ten seasons, yeah. a bona fide hit, part of the TV lexicon. I said, what does the afterglow look like? I said, do you get six weeks? <laughs> where you feel like I did it like and he said no you get a couple of days and then it's on to the next like yeah have you had any afterglow moments where for a couple of weeks you were like I am great I did it <laughs> I'm proud no I mean I'm really proud of the show and the people who work on it um but no you really don't get it I wonder did you ever ask him if after the show was all done if he did because that, no, that's what I asked how even after I'm saying even after the whole series was over he told this great story he's like let me tell you about this business he said I had this incredible crew and these writers who I loved he said so at the tail end of the show we knew we were ending after 200 plus episodes I went to CBS he said I'd like to do a spin-off about Brad Garrett's uh, you know family his wife who's sure. Phil's wife friends he's like we've got Chris Elliott we've got Peter and Doris want to do it it'll be great and we'll use all our writers so that I don't have to lose these guys because they're going to go get multi-million dollar deals now sure. off the back of this and CBS thought about it and said well we'll give you a pilot uh. <laughs> and Phil said oh no 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 he's like no these guys aren't going to stick around for a pilot yeah I need just an order give me 13 just give me enough of an order so that my writers want to stay and they said nah pilot and he said save it let's yeah. just not do it because they don't believe in it yeah it's very rare i think the the people who tend to do what we all do for a living are fed by neuroses and, and anxiety and so I, it's very rare to have, i think find a person who has any degree of success in it and feels constantly contented yes uh, by any kind of success um yeah like i'll have moments but like they're more about like an episode or watching an episode when I know it's really good of something. But like, there's very, it's very rare to you. Like, uh, and I think that's part of what you need to do if you want to stay like good at your job is like any sense of satisfaction or self-congratulatory stuff is, is like, you're starting to get like, you're starting to, you know, drink from like the, the wrong Kool -Aid. well. Yeah. And so, yeah, drink the Kool-Aid. And so I don't know. I think, you have to like stay self-loathing and neurotic or else you'll kind of lose your edge. But it's so much work. Every day is a new script comes in, a new edit begins, a new episode starts production. I have a movie I'm releasing. I'm doing press for it. And it should be this very exciting time where I've worked really hard to get here. I'm proud of all the stuff that's coming out and has come out. But um, I mainly just want to like watch shitty reality television with my wife and like have some like – a drink and like some good takeout food. And it's rare. I even get to do that these days cause I'm working so much. So what's the reality show? Cause then I'll tell you mine. What do you like? We are obsessed with world of dance right now, Okay, which is on NBC. And like, 
the people are really good at dancing. And like, we like watching it. Kate watches the more like, um, like E style, like Kardashian esque shows is like her guilty pleasure, but I'm, I, I don't really too much. do those. Yeah. What's yours? My wife, like 16 or teen mom, which fucks I think me up. Kate watches that one. I'm like, these are bad people, Paige. Yeah. I can't <laughs> yeah. watch this. I'm more of a Shaza Sunset guy. Okay. A little more of a purist. I've seen that one. <laughs> but I, I like the fixer-upper couple. Very good. I Chip think and they're Jojo. Very charming. It's the same shit every week. And they always put shiplap on things. And I can tell you exactly what the house is going to look like at the end. Yes. But I always like waiting to see if the people seem genuinely like properly pleased and grateful at the end or if they're just kind of like i keep waiting for the time when they reveal the house and the people are like i thought it would be better than this i don't like it and it's like (laughs) and then i also like i like like hate watching it and going like they could be a little more grateful look at the beautiful job they did making them a house and they're going like oh yeah it's really nice i like it when they people like cry and like have a religious experience oh yeah yeah i like the shows where they go and they have to find like three different possible places to live in yeah like and and it's always the same storyline because yeah. the wife loves it, yeah. but it's a hundred dollars yeah. over their budget. Yeah. And asshole husbands like, I just don't know. I'm like, it's a hundred bucks, bro. Make yeah. your wife happy. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah, it's the, the the fake selection of the three houses is always great. I also like uh, we watch The Voice a lot. We uh, we good. like the competition shows a lot. I think I don't I don't know why. We like. Uh, what was the one I was going to say? My buddy did a show. My best friend did a show, a reality show, when he first started out here that I always thought was the best idea. But it was not – it was like it came and went. It was before your time. But it was called Three Wishes. Okay. And I feel like Shania Twain hosted it, although I could be getting that wrong. Enough said. But the idea was that they would find people who just like had a wish, whether it was like they want a heart transplant or they want a new house or they want a new car. And like just like NBC or whoever was making it would go and just make these things happen. And I was like, what a great idea. Beautiful. For a show. Um, but it didn't last, and I don't know that it was perfectly executed. <laughs> so you have your movie, Life Itself, yep. coming out, about to, and we'll talk a lot about that, and screen at the Toronto Film Fest. Open it, yep. right? Uh, opening uh, on Saturday the 6th, like two days from now. Wow. Yeah. So you're there, the movie screens, and you know people go nuts for it, and then you get an email that says... There's something off in in the edit for this week's episode of This Is Us. Or are you able to go, it's not the end of the world. I'll get to that. Let me enjoy this moment. Are you overcome by terror? Yeah. I mean, I think with the the show, the show is such a well-oiled machine at this point. And people are so good at their jobs that aren't me that like there's never an emergency of that nature anymore. We're usually far enough ahead. Um, But yeah, I'll be getting flooded with emails. What, that I'll be answering because people I don't want to hold people up on a casting decision or a wardrobe decision, so it'll it won't be like the sky is falling, but I will definitely be like doing the nonstop press in Toronto, and hopefully it all goes well there, and I will definitely be under the table returning eight thousand emails about the TV show. Also, what does your inbox look like when you wake up in the morning? It's not too bad because. I keep it clean. Like that's the bulk of my day and probably a lot of the stress in my day is like I respond and I keep like a clean, I keep a clean inbox. It's like the best way I can kind of do my job. And so when the emails start piling up, it gets too overwhelming for me. And so like I rarely have more than seven to 10 in my inbox. And they're often people like asking me to read a script or stuff that I'm not going to get to for a while. Like, so like I like 
and I sleep with my phone next to my bed, which you're not supposed to do. And I'll like wake up in the middle of the night and return a couple or like delete Will a you? couple. Yeah. Um, first of all, and I have to pay you a compliment. You do return emails. Like you're my most powerful friend <laughs> and you return emails in like minutes. Yeah. I have assholes that are doing like under five lines on CSI <laughs> that I can't get, you know, something back for a month. It, it's, I think it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's part of my job. I think a lot of the times, because like I'm running television shows and directing a movie. I was at times I've been doing both simultaneously and at times I've had multiple TV shows. Like when we were doing our show, sure, I had, you know, three pilots going, that show going, I was directing a movie or prepping a movie. Like you have to respond to stuff. And so like, you can't go more than a couple hours cause then you will step out of a meeting and you will have 65 emails that you can't catch up to. Yeah. Uh, and then you suddenly have people in holding patterns. I mean, I've still, I'm still trying to figure out like how to conquer the unnecessary replies and just being able to delete stuff. You know what I mean? And like uh, putting stuff off where, you know, people are wanting stuff. A lot of like, it's, it's a, it's a, ma it's a management thing of like how quickly you respond. I, I, I respond quickly to you because I like you. I, I'm, not I appreciate that quick to, it. I'm not that quick to everybody. Else. That's why I try not to email you much. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've heard this said, and I don't know if it's true, but a friend of mine who works for Shonda Rhimes yeah. said that if you email her past a certain time, like past eight o'clock or yeah. something like that, you will get a automatic reply saying it's after eight. We should all be with our families. We'll deal with this at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Mm. So is there ever a time like on a Sunday night or whatever where you'll block out six hours and say, I'm off my phone. I'm just going to disconnect. If I'm being honest, probably no. And it's, uh, I like that story. That's like kind of a cool thing. I wonder if she, for me, the one problem would become, it would make my morning more difficult. Like sure. I almost wish if I were to do that, I would almost want my email to say like that very thing. And then say like, this will be automatically deleted. Email me starting at nine in the morning and I'll do my best to reply in the course of the day. Cause I don't want that one looming over me for the night. Like I'd rather it come and, Sure. In the morning. But uh, no, it's an important thing. I mean, one of uh, a, a friend of mine had a heart attack very young. And I remember like he was watching me like keep up with the emails and work and telling me like, you got to turn it off sometimes. Like speaking not just of the phone, but of work. You know, I, it's hard because you work so hard to get to this place. And then you're here and you're like, I'm going to turn it off now. You know what I mean? Like, and so... I think I'm almost there. Like I really wanted this film to get done and get done the right way and come out the right way. And the show I've obviously devoted my life to, but now it's become this kind of finely oiled machine. And I think like the next chapter of my life, especially as my wife and I consider possibly starting a family and doing that is like where I hope to find a little bit more balance. Like I was always the guy I, that never, I've always been mystified and impressed by, but also never quite understood the super successful people who are just constantly on vacation. Like they take a week off or they're not going to be able to make that phone call because they've got plans after five, like basically your Shonda Rhimes email. I've never had that in me. I've always been kind of a little bit unable to shut it off. And so that is something I want to work on, I think. But is there, and obviously I know you have great loves, loves like the Mets yeah. and certain things. And yet I wonder, cause I know for me, I don't really have hobbies. Right. Like my, what do they say? Uh, my vocation is my vacation. Yeah. I get great joy in accomplishing things, even if it's something like this or what have sure. you. And so for you, is it just sort of like, yeah, I, I can enjoy some distractions here and there, but for the most part, I'm doing my great passion in yeah. life. It feeds me. I think so. I mean, I, 
fight a balance of, you know, complaining about my workload at times, but I don't really complain too much, I think, I hope. I It took me quite a while to accept that I really love what I'm doing, and, and even though I may work a lot, quite a lot, and be unable to turn it off, it's okay because I also love it, and it's like, I'm not doing something I hate because I'm forced to do it or because of a compulsion. I get great pleasure out of editing these episodes and making this film and, you know, and doing this stuff. And so, um, the balance for me is like the compulsion to go past that point. And I'd le- I would like to find a little bit more balance there. Um, I watch my Mets and I will give myself like three hours. I'll pick a game on a Sunday. Not that I'm working the whole time, but my wife will give me three hours. Say like, watch the game you wanted to watch. But I usually do have a laptop or my phone on me and I'm kind of checking in towards like what I needed to be getting done over that weekend for work. So it's not complete freedom from it. Um, my wife and I have a house up North. Uh, have you ever been up there? No, in we wine have a country? ranch up in wine in San Inez, California. It's a little three-bedroom house, but we're, we're on like eight acres, and we have horses. And now we just got chickens. Oh yeah, and like we're constantly like up there drinking wine and hanging. And that place is definitely like my place to check out. Now sometimes I'll go up there and know I have to write a script or read a script or whatnot. But it's still like it's a different um, pace of play a little bit. And so I really, really like it up there. And that's where I get to turn it off the most. Yeah. That's white people shit. It's white a people horse, shit. A horse, chickens. You know, well, you know what it is? It's like, it's very like a, it's very non-Jewish shit. So I'm learning. <laughs> so like, I don't ride the horses, but I can feed them and I can kind of put their harnesses on and walk them out to their pasture. Now we, we raised our chickens and like from one day old and now they're like four weeks old and we're going to, or four months old. We're going to soon have our own eggs. And so I, I like, it's, I, I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. I had to do a movie where I had to play a cowboy and I'm mm-hmm. of the Jewish persuasion as well. <laughs> yeah. So it made zero sense. And they were like, let's give you some horse training. And the moment I got on that thing, I was like, oh, this is stupid. Yeah. I was like, this guy just has a very small brain and a much bigger body yeah. than mine. Yeah. They're pretty overwhelming. My wife, who's like a hundred pounds dripping wet, is so unbelievable with the horses. She grew up with them and she rides really seriously. And so like, she like has no fear and it, and I like the second they make a big move at me, I jump back and almost get kicked because I freak them out. They're like, terrifying. Kate, yeah, but Kate is like, I mean, it's like she's handling a poodle. They feel your fear. Yeah, they know. Totally. Wait, hold on. Is this another ad? Oh, my, Josh. Yes, we stand a sponsored king. Yes. Anyway, guys, what's up with HelloFresh? Are you familiar? Let me tell you. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you could just cook, eat, and enjoy. They've got three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family, and you can look forward to your HelloFresh delivery knowing dinner just got that much easier. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. Spend less time meal planning and, and grocery shopping each week and, and get that time back to do more of, of what you love. No, but in in full, you know, transparency, I love my HelloFresh deliveries and I recently got one and uh, we were eating like these delicious veggie taco things that were made with chickpeas and you know like sometimes I'm a little you know uh, on the fence about the whole vegetarian thing my wife's beautiful vegetarian but these were like delicious and hearty and just uh they 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 just they they checked off all the boxes 
as, as people say. Anyway, for a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Curious60 and enter Curious60. That's HelloFresh.com slash Curious60 and enter Curious60. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. I've seen people like you who are incredibly talented, either writers or directors or both, and they'll create a show. Yeah. And then they will be sort of... The natural progression is you're promoted to this showrunner title where now you're running the entire thing. And I find that some people might be a brilliant writer or director, but they can't make the transition to the managerial aspect yeah. of show running. And you seem to have done that so seamlessly. Like, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. My first television show went, nobody watched it, but it was called Like Family. It was on the WB. And, uh, but I was like put in a position where I hired two experienced guys to work by my side that were five, 10 years older than me. And they brought me into the process. And so from the very beginning, I've been kind of making stuff and getting to be in a, not quite the boss, but in the position where, you know, it's my show or I'm doing it. I think that like ma managing people is the hard, it's far harder than writing. I mean, like we're all nuts and managing as many people as you manage, there's emotions and there's um, hopes and dreams and all this other stuff that you have to be doing. I'm terrible at firing people, which I've unfortunately had to do a couple of times. What's like, that like? It's awful. And, and I'm terrible at it. So I make it worse because by the time I've had to let somebody go, like they're unclear what's happened because Ugh. I'm not clear enough. And, it's, so I have a lot of stuff to work on. You know what I mean? Like I'm not always as direct as I want to be because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and that sometimes can hinder growth. You know what I mean? And so those are, there's like a stuff to learn. But like I also, I was always like a kid as a young guy. Like I was always comfortable, you know, speaking in front of people, being um, extroverted. And a lot of writers are not by nature. I mean, one of the skill sets of a writer is probably somebody who's very internal and most at home in front of a computer or with a pen in their hand. So a showrunner is a completely different skill. You're a manager of human beings. And so um, I think I had a leg up just because I was a pretty extroverted guy to begin with beyond. And it probably, because I am, it probably uh, at times like uh, hides like at times a lack of writing talent because like um, – you know, my career kind of took off by me being like really good at pitching stories in the room and telling stories about my family that would get turned into TV shows or movies. And that has nothing to do with being a good writer. That's more being a car salesman. And a lot of writers don't have that skill set, nor should they. Like you don't want a writer to be a car salesman. I just happened to like, I was from New Jersey. I was a loud, like kind of kid with a big personality. And so when I started doing this at 25, it probably helped quite a bit. 
But you hear that too, and and I have no doubt that that that's in the Jersey water, the ability yeah. in which to sell. But like you hear about guys like Mick G, yeah. who I don't, you know, I can only guess that I don't think he does much writing, but as a seller of ideas, he gets in the room and he just crushes yeah. the game. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you'll. I remember, you know, like what's the guy's name and um, Brett Ratner. I remember being on a plane with him once. I mean, and this guy was up and down the aisle. Exhausting. Like talking to everybody. And then my friends who were such talented directors and I were all kind of sitting and we were uncomfortable. There were celebrities on the plane. You know, we were on like a private plane going to the premiere. I think it was Crazy Stupid Love. And some people just have that muscle. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and some people don't. I think I fall somewhere in between. I think I can, you know, I can, you know, tell a story I can pitch a movie without it feeling like a movie pitch. I talk about like the characters that's inspired by I'm good at talking in front of people in that way. It's I, I think it doesn't come off as too swarmy where some guys can come off as like really really aggressive. It's a skill that I've manufactured and developed over time, but it's also one that I had. But again, it's not like nobody hires a writer to be a performer. It's just not what the job is. And so I was lucky to have that. And I do think it overcompensated for like other things until I learned how to do them. I got to tell you Brett Ratner's story real quick. Yeah. Once my wife and I, we get invited to Muhammad Hadid's house. Okay. The, uh, he, is he is the father of Gigi and Bella Hadid. Mm. He's a, um, a, a real estate tycoon. Okay. So we get invited to his house and it's like, my wife and I have no business being there, but we're a friend of a friend. Sure. And, and I mean, there's a staff and it's a Bel Air mansion and there's a table like 30 people long and we're sitting there. And I'm at the end of the table, and there's one open chair because someone's late. And Brett Ratner saunters in two hours late, yeah. and he sits next to me. And he takes one look at me. He goes, how do I know you? And I was like, you, ah, you don't. Like, we, we met once years ago, but you don't. And I, my fear is that he felt as though they sat the one actor near uh, him. I'm like, bro, you're two hours late. Right, right, like, right. I didn't ask for this seating. <laughs> right, I was right, very punctual. Right, right. He proceeded to ignore me and... in indiscriminately hit on my wife right. <laughs> for the entire day. Right. And I was like, I don't know whether to punch you or just to like laugh. Yeah. Or I was like, well, at least you're living up to the hype. Yeah. There's characters. I mean, and then there are people who are just such introverts. I mean, it's, it's an, it's like, I always describe it with writers or directors. It's a little like actors, like, you know, actors are, um, you know, their job and their, their trade and their profession is to act. But now part of the job is to promote, the stuff that you act in. And some actors just aren't good and comfortable at that. Yeah. They might be the best actors in the world, like Daniel Day-Lewis or whomever, you know, whomever, but they're not good on talk shows, you know? And I kind of, I always think of that with writing, what writing has become is, you know, especially in our industry, not as novelists, like part of the job is being able to go take these bullshit general meetings and come off as charming and make people like you as much as part of the job is also writing a really good script. Um, you know somebody's a great writer when they're like a real introvert and they're highly successful in the business because you're like, okay, they're doing this based solely off their writing because the the schmooze button that that like some of us have, they don't have. And that means they're really fucking good at what their actual profession is and not the other stuff. Do you ever, have you ever sold something in the room where they give you a definitive yes? Yeah, What's What's that feel like? You know, 
it used to feel when I was younger and it was happening, A, it was like, you know, I was just, you know, starting to make money and scraping by. So that's exciting because, you know, you're going to get paid for something. I don't do that anymore because for the last like seven years, I realized uh, I'm in a position in life and I've realized for writing wise what I like to do, like I don't want to sell an idea. I want to sell a script that's fully written and that's ready to go and be made into a television show or a movie. I don't want to make a pilot anymore. I don't want to make a script that may or may not turn into a movie or have an idea for a script that they may decide they hate the script or don't like it. So I don't, I haven't for ever since I wrote the movie crazy, stupid love, I wrote that movie just as a script and then sold it and got it made because I owned it and I controlled it. And so ever since then, I've never really sold another pitch verbally in any way where I sell something in the room. I'd rather, I I prefer to take the time, write a script, hand it to them. And worst case scenario, they don't like the script or nobody likes the script, then nobody makes it and I wasted time. But at least I didn't like sell something of mine that I was excited about as an idea and then watch it get owned by somebody else or turned into something that never gets made or never sees the light of day. But when I started and when I was younger to make a living, you pitch and you sell, try and sell stuff and hopefully sell stuff in the room. Like I remember I did a movie called Last Vegas. And I auditioned for it, just saying. Really? I did. For me? No, no. not for oh, you. Because no, I wasn't directing it. And, uh, and uh, the, uh, it was a pitch. And I had had this idea. It was before The Hangover had come out. And the idea was like these four really old guys experiencing various forms of loss and things going on in their lives, decide to go to old Vegas for one final like bachelor party of the guy getting married and uh, hijinks ensue. I want it to be really old guys originally in my mind's eye, like in their eighties and um, really hard R. <clears throat> and so I went and pitched it to all the movie studios. I was like a young up and coming, getting hot kind of screenwriters, probably like, I don't even know, eight years ago, maybe even longer, 10 years ago. And, by like the third meeting at like of the eight studios I was going to, people were calling the agents and saying like, we will give him X amount of dollars to stop taking the rest of the meetings. Like people didn't want me going into the other places because they liked the idea so much. Then the hangover came out and kind of a little bloom went off, you know, bloom went off the rose of the idea. But at the time it was like that situation. Like I was in my car and they were like, do you want to stop taking meetings? They will offer you X amount of dollars to oh stop. Oh my God. Yeah, it was like that. It was like, I mean, that's a good crazy. drive home. It was good. Yeah. That's nice. But I, you know, I pitched it like eight times in one day and I'm pitching the same bullshit. Like it was like, it is what it is, but it was, it was exciting. Oh my God. That's like when you're driving down like Wilshire Boulevard and you're like counting the palm trees. Yeah. And you're like, God, I could have been on the Jersey Turnpike working yeah. at like, but it didn't feel even then, like to your earlier, what we were talking about earlier. Like I remember thinking like, I don't know if this is going to be a good movie. I should have probably written this. They're going to, they're going to want to change it. I remember thinking like I was stressed over which place to pick. Literally with that, I remember picking a place after making a difficult choice. And then a day later, the place called and said they hadn't properly vetted the project in the rush to buy it. And they had a competing project coming out and could no longer buy it. And I had to like, all of a sudden we were going to lose the deal. So like all of it, like if I'm being honest is there was no like birds chirping. What a great, exciting day this is. Like I remember the cocktail I went and had with my agent and how exciting it all was. Like, I don't remember that at all. I remember stress and anxiety and feeling like, is this really what I should be doing with my life? this type of thing, this type of way. So like, I don't remember it being a really positive experience. (laughs) But do you think that you, it's a testament to you of having the clarity of vision and the belief that like, if I put in the sweat equity to write this thing, 
that there's a good chance it'll be bought. But if yeah. it's not, like it was worthwhile. Where I feel like the major or many people in your position n- no longer want to put in that time. Yeah, I'm always mystified by people in my position who don't want to put in that time. That they want the thing set up or sold. They want the equivalent of like the deadline Hollywood article more than they want to have complete creative control of their project and a finished product. Um, that being said, you know, people that are doing like what we're doing that are in our position are like rare. Like I have the means. I don't, first of all, I don't have children yet. Second of all, I've been successful in this business since I was like 26 years old. So I don't need to take a job. I can take the risk of writing something and saying, wow, I just spent four months writing something and now nobody wants to buy it. It's very easy. It's easier for me to do that than it is for somebody who's got children and a mortgage to pay and is a writer of some success, but they can't sit and afford to like, you know, take tons of risks. They need to make a living. And so, you know, it's not that heroic when a, like there's a high likelihood because of where my career's at, it is going to sell and B like, if it doesn't, it doesn't crush my existence in my life on a financial or career level. So it's it's easier for people like me. It, it always surprises me when people in that position make the choice to not, to, to just kind of get something set up and not try and write it because that's our currency. We're writers. So write a script and then let somebody buy it. Can you pinpoint a specific time in your career when, like, I interviewed Danny Chun, our our mutual friend, and I said, you know, he started on The Simpsons, and he said, I came in very confident, even being 22 and new to the game, and then I was surrounded by the funniest people I'd ever met, and I drove home terrified. He said, but now I show up on a set or in a writer's room, and I know, for better or for worse, I'm going to do my job, which is... I have belief that I am good enough that maybe I'll have a extraordinary day or just a fine day, but it'll always be pretty good. Is it, was there a moment when you were like, I'm probably going to be able to do this for the rest of my life? Um, I'm good at this. Yeah. I mean, getting a job, my first, I got an early, the early job I got was at Pixar writing cars or being one of the writers of cars. How'd you get that job? That job I'd written a first screenplay about my first screen. I was out here doing production. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I'd always written, but I, I didn't know if I'd be a writer or certainly not a screenwriter. I'd never written a screenplay. And so I was, uh, what had I done? I, I moved out to, um, I moved out to LA and I wrote a screenplay. I was doing, um, production work. I worked as a PA for Howie Mandel on his daytime talk show. I was a PA like researcher for Jimmy Kimmel on the man show. I was just taking like basic production jobs and working my way through a ladder. I wound up getting a little job on a cable network writing stuff and it actually paid me a decent wage and I was able to start working from home and I was like, maybe I should, everybody's writing screenplays out here. I've always been a writer my whole life. Maybe I'll write a screenplay and I bought final draft or stole it from my roommate who now runs my production company. And I wrote a screenplay, like a Wonder Years style screenplay about my bar mitzvah. And you didn't even, you hadn't, had you read Robert McKee? I think I bought like at a Barnes Noble. I remember buying a couple of books of like, how do you format a screenplay kind of thing? Like, like Sid Field type Yeah, shit. exactly. The basic, basic stuff. And I learned, taught myself Final Draft. And I was like, oh, Final Draft kind of does it for you. When you hit the return button, it goes into dialogue. And I figured that out. And I wrote a screen, screenplay, like a Wonder Years looking back on his crazy family and his bar mitzvah, a Jewish kid in New Jersey. And I think probably surreptitiously, I also knew that like if a Jewish agent identifies with the story or finds it like almost relatable, oh, I, yeah. I might get an agent, which I'm told is what you're supposed to do. So my roommate, 
I handed it to him. I was like, is this good? Because it's what he was doing as an assistant. We were like 24. And he was like, I think it might be really good. And he passed it on to people at work and a young manager there and his junior manager at the time um, named Aaron Brown read it and passed it on to agents and got, she signed me and then passed me off to agents who signed me. And Aaron is still my manager to this day, 20 years later. Uh, my agent who she introduced me to is still my agent. And so, and then like pretty soon after Pixar was looking for a new writer. They would, at the time they hired very young writers who had to be willing to move up to San Francisco and not make a fortune. And they sent them that, that screenplay and I was, they responded to it. I was one of like the 10 people that got to go up there and interview for the job and I hit it off with them and they hired me. And it was like this very blessed run. Once I had that break and I knew that like I went home and I felt like, oh wow, now I, for two years I get to be the kid who wrote the new Pixar movie before it even comes out. I was like, I knew that like I would have a career doing this and be able to make a living doing it for a while. It was unclear for quite a while that like, my career would amount to anything successful, you know, or not. But like, I felt like I was going to be able to make a comfortable living after that. But did you, you know, like Tony Gilroy has this thing about storytelling. He's like, you, if you were read fairy tales as a kid, you fucking know how to tell a story. Don't tell me that you need a book to teach you to have everything fall apart at the end of the second act only to rebuild it in the third. Did you just inherently know that? I guess I, mean, I did read a book or two. Like I remember needing a little bit of formal, like, like what is a three act structure for a film, you know, as opposed to a play. And, and it wasn't even that I was reading theory. I was like, what, how long should a screenplay be? Like, yeah. I didn't know if they should be thousand pages or like 400 pages, like a book or a hundred pages. And so like, I, li- I needed to literally know that like your end of your first act is roughly page 30. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Right. Just the real yeah. basics. Um, but no, I didn't really have any sense of anything. And walking into the machine of Pixar, what did that, I mean, because you were working with John Lasseter, yeah. like what did, what did that experience teach you? What did you learn from their system? It was system? great. I got to learn how to write movies and make a movie because like that process is like you write 150,000 movies while you're writing one. You put something up, you kind of cartoon board it out. You see how it's playing, you kind of revamp, you change, you adjust. And so I was like, for a guy who had literally written one movie so far, that was, uh, one screenplay, it was, like a lear- it was like a learning ground for me. It was, like, it was like going to graduate school. And I was like working with these very smart guys and John Lasseter and Joe Ramft, who was like a Pixar legend who passed away soon after I was there in a tragic car accident. But like those two guys, I really just like, that's how I learned how to like shape a story in screenplay form. And their whole edict is fail fast, right? Like walk a story down the road. Yeah, it's their, they, I mean, what I always, I've done three movies for them and it always seems to be like, put something up on its feet, even sometimes before you know exactly what it is and let it keep adjusting, 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 adjusting. It has clearly worked for them. I've often found, thought there were smarter ways to work that would save time and money. Yeah. And energy, but like it also, it's a process that worked for them. When I did the film Tangled, I came onto that film very late and it was like, it had undergone a lot of time and changes. It had been nine years or something. And on that one, I was kind of like, you guys have to let me write the screenplay. That screenplay with obviously adjustments, but that needs to hold. And because we have no time and like, this is how I'll do it. And so that was the only time I really experienced something like that working where it really like it, 
the, it always adjusts with the storyboard artists who are exceptional and the directors who on that film were just awesome. Um, but like that one would like had to move so quickly that like a screenplay came into shape pretty quickly. Yo, what's up? What if I told you that you don't brush your teeth correctly? What would you do? You would do what you're doing now, which you would like cock your head and you were, your eyes would go wide and you'd be suspicious of me. You'd be like, yo, maybe this Josh Peck kid is not everything I thought he was. I don't, maybe I don't like him as much as I thought because he's talking that bugged out crazy stuff. But the truth is one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brush our teeth. Yet most of us don't do it properly. That's why Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Cause it's got a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, which is like a nice, helpful guide. Plus, brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. I'm going to be honest, guys. Everyone's busy. You're busy. I'm busy. And the fact that this like adorable package showed up in my house, I got my toothbrush, it vibrates, I got my brush heads, I don't got to worry about like refilling that or like having that annoying trek to, you know, some store to like walk the aisles and hope that I can buy the proper toothbrush with the right amount of firmness and the bristles. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Scientists. Anyway, this is why I love Quip, and this is why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash curious right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash curious. So then when you go and like direct something like Danny Collins yeah. and obviously it's the, in, in theory, it's great, right? I wrote this great thing and now I'm just going to perhaps try to get the greatest living actor to agree yeah. and a couple other of the greats. Yeah. But the moment that Pacino says yes, are you racked with fear? Like, oh fuck, wait, I have to direct him now? It was, I was fearful with Pacino after he was sent the script, I went to New York to see him in, I think it was Othello. I don't remember which Shakespeare play it was. It was whichever one he was doing on Broadway at the time. And he was wonderful. And they called me backstage oh, fuck. after to go talk to him. And I didn't know like if he was interested, if he was going to do it yet. And <laughs> I imagine him in the shadows being like, Dan, yeah. come forth. It was... <laughs> It wasn't a far cry. I mean, it was in the bowels of a theater. It was less like a shithole, like theater so often, you know, is, you know? Yeah. And I'm waiting downstairs, and I was with the producer, Jesse Nelson, and Kate, my wife, and I believe Jesse's husband, Brian. And Richard Gere was down there waiting to pay respects. And Richard Gere was definitely checking out my wife's ass as we were sitting there waiting to, for Pacino to call us Amazing. In. He and, would. And I remember just being like really nervous then and meeting Al. And he said nice things about the script. And I felt like there was a chance that he was going to do it. So I was never, you know, like the thing is, as you know, like, like you remember like going over and reading with Al and the intimidation of the whole thing. But like, the thing is, is like, once you start spending, a, once you break that seal and you meet a human being, like you stop being nervous, then you're managing a process a little bit more. Like, yeah. so for you, I'm sure it was like maybe the first time going to read, did we rehearse at his house with him? We did. did. You, and then, uh, and then probably the first day on set probably. But I, I would imagine by the third day on set with him, you're not nervous anymore. 
No, not at all. And especially when I was at his house and I said, when he was showing me out, I said, thank you so much for having yeah. me. I'm such a huge fan. He goes, oh, I'm a fan of yours. He was. He was. I remember when I sent him <laughs> your audition and he knew you from the show. Oh and, my, from Drake and Josh. From Drake and Josh. Because he had kids, he had such young kids, Al. And so he, they, he had like been watching, like probably you were the only thing he was watching on television for like oh that year. Oh my God. Uh, at a different period. He's, it, but uh, I was most... With directing, with that movie, because it was the first movie and only movie I directed, like, I'd been on a lot of sets. I'd written a lot of movies, good and bad, that had gotten made and where I had been a very big part of, like, the whole thing, like, kind of side by side with the director. But I'm not, I was not, I never went to film school, and I'm not a film historian. So the parts of directing that required jargon were always really intimidating to me in terms of talking about lenses and are you going, like, anamorphic or not and that kind of stuff. fifty. Exactly. I, don't even like, know what the I fuck still that is. and I didn't. And honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I sometimes still don't. I, I get them mixed up and confused. But I know I I figured out a shorthand with both DPs who I worked with, who were very accomplished, great guys. And I also kind of like just kind of said, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to admit when I don't know anything. And I know what I want. I just don't always have the language. So a lot of times that technical part of directing for me is going, no, no, no. I want to open on his feet right there. I want to go find her. And then I want the camera to do this. And I motion with my hands what this is. And they go, Oh, you want to do a rack to him after the, you know, the, and pull the focus on, onto her. And that I'm like, yes, well, whatever I just said that is, that's what I want it to be. Yeah. And then as I've done more and made more, now I start to have the jargon in the language. I remember a big stress for me on the first movie. It was like, do you actually, I can't remember from being on set. Do I yell action? Do I yell cut? Is that a thing that's just in the movies or is that an actual thing I'm supposed to do? And not every director does. And everyone does it different and that's what I was told. And you realize like none of it is rocket science. You're managing an army and you have to have a vision creatively and artistically for what you want the film to be. And from Danny Collins, that gave me like, it was a, in a lot of ways it was a challenging film because Al in the best ways is like, you have to be on your game to keep him centered and the cast was so accomplished, and you, the movie had a high degree of tonal difficulty. Filmmaking-wise, it wasn't a real high-wire act. It was, it was purposely like a kind of like um, simple film, and that was the intent of it. This, the next film had a lot more complicated stuff to accomplish, and I wouldn't have been ready to do that for life itself if I hadn't done Danny Collins first, because it would have been like jumping into the deep end as a baby without the floaty things on your arms. And like, I, I needed that background first. Could you distill in observing Pacino for months on end, one thing in particular that he, cause I know just getting to do like three scenes yeah. with him, what I observed in him that I was like, Oh, that's like when I would do a scene with him, what I found fascinating. I remember there was one take yeah. where I have to ask him something and he literally did this and, and, just not in the script, of course, yeah. but he goes, oh, hmm. oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, but there was no insecurity about it. No. It was like this came out because yeah. shit comes out as a human being, and I'm just going to own it and make yeah. it a part of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Al is, it's, I mean, I've been like, like I made a movie with Barbara Streisand. I've made movies with like been able to be with Michael Douglas and Morgan Freeman and Kevin Klein and Robert De Niro. I've like gotten to be around real heavyweight people. I've done two with Annette. Christopher Plummer was in our movie. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I've been lucky to be around some of the big ones. Um, Al, like I could, 
I can sit and tell Pacino stories from working on one movie with him for like, I could do it two days straight of Pacino stories because he's such, he's an eccentric guy. He's kind. He is funny, but he doesn't always like know when he's being, you know, when he's being funny and he often really does. So like the thing of like what makes him special is a really interesting thing because so much of the time you're going like, what is he doing right now? But there is a method to it. There is like an openness of like, and it's in his eyes and there's an openness of spirit. And it's why sometimes his performances are, you know, can be unrestrained and bonkers because like there is no restraint in him. And that means like he can dive really deep emotionally. He can go somewhere really big and broad. And that's what I've always like that. Like the, I think that's what makes him so unique. He's almost boundless. Uh, and then your job as a director or, and also as a writer is like to find what the pocket is and let him stretch the envelope of that. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, just Al is Al and like, he would like, we once did a scene in that film where it's right before he meets you in the film where he's leaving his life behind and he's decided to make a change. And I wanted to shoot as a one or him walking out of his mansion all the way down the driveway as he's calling for a car and a plane and saying, I'm going to New Jersey. And it was a long, long one or like a 30 second walk. And he was just going to be walking at a sedentary camera. And that's all the coverage I wanted to get. I didn't want to pop in on him. And so we're about to shoot. And it's one single shot. And it's like of the many things we had to do on this film, it was towards the very, it might've been on his last day and our last day. This is pretty much as simple as you get. It's one shot locked off camera. I'm sitting 50 yards away and going, I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to yell action. And then it's you and just go for it. And he's on a phone call, one-sided phone call. And I go, action. And he starts, he goes, Joe, I'm going to need the car. And then he stops. He goes, Dan, you know what? It, I think this will be easier for me if you're reading the part on the other line on the actual phone. And I go, you want me to read it out? I go, what if I have like so-and-so read it? No, I'd like it to be you for timing. So now there's no scripted other line, right? He's going... And so now right. I'm directing a movie. I'm trying to manage the timing of this one shot with Al Pacino walking down a driveway. I am acting on the phone opposite him. And he starts, so I'm going, okay, all right, Al, I'm going to yell action. And I go, all right, Al. And I go, and action. And he's on the phone going, wait, what? And he goes, he goes, I thought I'd say the first one. I'm like, no, Al, this is just me yelling action. Now I'm saying into the phone. And it's so confusing. And now he's walking down the driveway. And it was hysterical. He's walking down the driveway. And he's going, Joe, I'm going to need the car at 10. And I go, right away, boss. Uh, I'll have it there for you by 10. And then Al stops. And he's like, Dan, I think you should offer that it'll be there by, <laughs> not, by 9.30. And I'm like, Al, it's not going to be on camera. And he needed, he needed it. it. He wanted to see. And so, I mean, this little scene became like a thing, but it, a actually, but it actually led to some like good improvisation for him. It's like his instincts were so often actually very right. Um, but just managing the process was just like the best experience. And so can you talk a little bit to the, to, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by resiliency and the people that I really respect their ability in which to take a loss or something on the chin and just push right through and mm. not lament about it. And specifically, I remember doing grandfathered Yeah. and then you were nice enough to put me on pitch and two like great shows that only went one season. Yeah. And then 
This Is Us is after and changes the landscape of television. And I know for myself, if those were my two shows, I would have needed like a year to recover. And you were just like, okay, let's just keep it on, keep telling stories. Yeah. I mean, to the credit, to the discredit of myself and my resiliency, like I was writing This Is Us in pitch as Grandfathered was happening. So it wasn't like I got a crushing body blow and then went and said, what's next? Those things were already in motion when I thought everything was going to last forever. Yeah. And then when pitch was getting canceled, this is us was already launched. So it was able to like, I, I transition as opposed to stopping and starting. But I, you know, I, listen, the business is filled with, there is no, I mean, there is no, what you realize in our business particularly is that no one has had the career free of, bumps even the most blessed run actor writer director like the next bump is right around the corner unless you want to stop doing this right at a high point unless you go i just had the hit show it won all the awards now i'm done yeah mic drop it unless you want to unless you want to mic drop it you can't you will get crushed you will get bad reviews on something something will tank something will get canceled it's not it, it cannot be a perpetual perpetual uh perfect run like this kid that directed uh Whiplash and La La Land I hear his new movie the astronaut movie is great you know so he's coming out of the gate with 3 for 3, three killers. Right? killing three awesome movies he's winning oscars but like like i would imagine if you sat down and talked to him and i don't know him like he must be under a tremendous amount of pressure. He must constantly feel like at some point the sky is going to fall, which it probably will. And then, you know, the people who have long careers are the people who get back up and are talented, hopefully, and like kind of go to the next thing and and don't don't wallow in it. It sucks when they're meaningful to you, when you care about the shows like I cared about those shows and others I've created. When you care about a movie and think it's actually really good and then it doesn't do well, that's a disappointment. Like, I remember, like, Crazy Stupid Love, like, really changed the trajectory of my career. I had had three or three hit animated films. I was, like, still young, so I was, like, an up-and-coming guy. My couple of live-action films had not worked yet. Yeah. Crazy Stupid Love was, like, a game-changing, like, script, and I sold it for a gazillion dollars and the whole thing and got the cast. But when the movie came out, it's... People, we, people don't remember it now, but my friends directed that film and they directed the pilot and our producers on This Is Us. Um, it was a big disappointment for us. It financially underperformed where we'd hoped a movie that good and that was playing that well would go. I remember the reviews were good, not great. Tepid. Like, tepid. And I remember going, why are the reviews not better for this movie? I'm just the writer. I'm not the director. I'm, I'm sitting with perspective watching this movie and watching people react like that was a bit disappointing i remember word came back they do something called cinema score right. I remember that opening night as we were hearing that the movie wasn't quite performing where everybody had hoped it was doing fine the reviews weren't quite where you would hope but they were okay good and i remember then we got like the cinema score and it was like, which is like the audience response after leaving the theater. It was like a B or a B minus or a B plus. I don't remember what it was. And I was but like, it was a B. We, I was like, are we all watching the same thing? Now, I mean, I can't make anything new in my career without it saying from the writer of Crazy Stupid Love. Like, it's a touchstone film for people. But I remember even the release of that was like, I wouldn't call it a disappointment, but it was like a tepid. You know, overall. And now it's one of those ones that has clearly like is standing and has stood the test of time, you know, time and it's people, people are, it's like a a, a linchpin for people. But so the wins are few and far between. Like the La La Lands that make a lot of money and are successful and are critically acclaimed and he wins all the awards. Like 
that is rarefied weird luck air and kind of this is us in that in that way like it's popular it's a hit show it's getting nominated for stuff everybody's nice i love working on it like like you know each one is not going to be like that so you kind of have to brace yourself and be ready to like go to the next thing and how much of it be it in this is us or life itself which i've seen and i won't talk too much about it because i don't want to give anything away but it lives up to the hype 100 percent like how much of it is intentional your what has become sort of the fogelman spice of the you know so much of your work has had these incredible twists and turns in the stories things that you can never imagine where you like you sometimes like drop this bomb on the audience three quarters of the way through and you're like i didn't know i needed that but thank god he gave it to us are are you really thinking about that ahead not, of time? Not always. Like uh, the things I've had most success with, like Trade Stupid Love, has one. This is us. Obviously, had a big one. Life itself has a has a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I'm thinking. I like I like making stuff that like engages the audience, like actively engages people and makes people pay attention. Like. I watch, my own family watches my television show with their phones in their hand and they're losing attention and focus. And like, that's how we watch television, you know, television. So something that's constantly like snapping at the audience and saying, you better not stop paying attention is like, it's fun to be watching it on TV with people or especially sitting in a movie theater with people. Like, you know, I love going to movies. It's like, it's something I've always really kind of enjoyed. Me too. And while I love the experience of a big blockbuster action movie, or a big superhero movie or horror movie where everybody's jumping in their seats at the same time, or I love an R-rated comedy, the kind of stuff I really like, this kind of human-driven stuff where the audience is going on a ride together in a theater, like 200 strangers are feeling laughter and feeling some emotion. You can feel the room. That's like, it doesn't happen as much anymore, like in big theaters and full theaters. And so like, that was my hope with this movie and some of the stuff I do, like, is like, like, I'm, I enjoy sitting in a theater watching it a couple of times with people and and every time it plays it's like I know what to expect cuz I've screened the movie enough and I know how people are going to react and it's been exciting but it's always a little different you know yeah. some moments a little different and you know once a couple of people laugh other people laugh more to section than they're supposed to be laughing and that's interesting and I always find like most I really have never watched any of my films after they've been released after the opening weekend or two. Yeah. Who needs it? Yeah. I just never have, but I constantly am screening this movie, for instance, for people. And I always stay in the screenings and it's not because I'm sitting and like patting my back for, but like I made something and I like watching people react to it, um, in a theater. And like, because especially this movie, like the reactions are extreme. Like, People are laughing. There's big house laughs when you're in a full movie theater, but there are moments of pin drop silence. You can hear people crying in spots. You can like, and it's like, that's a really exciting experience. It's always a little bit different. So like that turns me on a bit. And I I ask this to every filmmaker, writer, director, someone who's on the other side of the table in the audition process for my fellow actors out there. What does an actor do when they walk into an audition, when they're auditioning for a part for yours, of yours, that makes you make the snap ju- judgment of, fuck this guy? Like, what, what, what do you hate? Like, what, yeah, what will an actor come in where you just immediately go, ah, this isn't my guy or girl? Um, it's a really, I think it's a really good question because, and there's the other side of two, which is like, what makes you really 
like somebody instantly. That too. Um, the the bad ones are probably a more specific thing because it's a more attainable, addressable, you know, addressable thing. Like, I think a lack of confidence is unappealing, which is different than nerves. I never mind nerves. Like, yeah. I don't want somebody's nerves to be so bad that it's making me uncomfortable because the thing I always tell actors is, is uh, you have to understand for any normal human being who's not a complete dick, and there are some in my position who are, auditioning people is a horrific, horrific human experience on my end, yeah. right? Because we all know actors doing what we do for a living. It's, it feels very vulnerable, and I hate auditioning people like because i feel like i know what they're how much work they've probably put into it especially now with the tv show i know that it's probably a big deal for them coming in and getting you know what i mean having a shot at reading for a big show or for a director and so i'm going like i've seen 800 people that day i have 17,000 emails to return my wife and i have made plans to watch our shitty reality shows together so there's 8,000 things going on in my life yeah and so i always remind actors of that like saying like Listen, like, nerves are fine, but, like, part of your job is, like, to make the person that's watching you comfortable that they're going to be watching somebody they enjoy watching, even if they're not right for the role, even if their skill set isn't there yet. Like, just on the, the entrance is a big deal. And I think finding that level of confidence that isn't cocky, confidence that you're good and yet you're going to do something interesting right now for your two minutes that you have. And... And that can present in different ways. I never mind, like, hey, you know, I was thinking I was going to do this with an accent. Is that cool? Or would you rather me just do it straight? But the 17 questions is never a good idea. You know what I mean? Don't no. Don't make me start answering, which happens more than you, you know. You or just think. small talk in general, right? I, I have never minded, like, concise, I have confidence, I know what I'm doing, I'm going to give you a little taste of me. You know, especially if the cat, if you're playing a serial killer, I don't think you want to come in and do crazy small talk. Talk about your golf game and shit. Exactly. Crazy but if rich Asians. If you're, playing a, if you're playing an extension of Dan or Josh, you know, like a, a, an everyman kind of sweet a mensch, guy. Some a might men- say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're playing that, like I don't mind getting a taste of who you are on that walk into that room as long as it doesn't go too long and it doesn't feel planned. Yeah. You know, but like when people come in and they're like um, – as an example, if somebody comes in and it comes in with confidence, it's hi, so nice to meet you. And it's like, I have to tell you, it's exciting. Like, I watch your show every week. I love the show. My favorite episode was when I think Sterling K. Brown, that episode where his father died, is the best thing on television I've ever, I've ever seen. Like, um, is there anything I should know or should I just dive in? Like, something like that is like confident. You get a taste of their personality. It didn't go on too long. They didn't make me uncomfortable. If it was anecdotal in that way, like saying, like, my mother, you know, but it's a risk because if you say like, my mother never misses your show. If a guy's got a bug up his ass that like only old women watch my show, like it <laughs> yeah. can backfire. But like, so there's no real answer. Um, but I think confidence is really important. I remember once seeing a really nervous girl who I was told in advance, um, gets very nervous at auditions, but she's a hot upcoming actor and her nerves were so bad that you could see the hands like vi- holding the paper shaking. But she was a confident actress, right? She knew that she was good in what she was doing, but she was ner- so the nerves never bothered me. It was always more like I wanted to see somebody who came in and they had a plan of attack, you know. Um, but like, I never like the all the other stuff coming in and saying like, "I'm so sorry, I just got this. I'm not off book." Like, I don't need to know. Just do your do your thing. We're all uncomfortable right now. Like, put me at ease. 
Yo, what's up? I got a quick ad to read real quick. And I know you're probably thinking like, yo, Josh, what's up, son? I'm enjoying the show. And here you are interrupting. Why? To have like a advertisement so you can make money? What is it all about money for you? You can't just do something for the love of it? Well, you know, the short answer to that is... No, I can't. Anyway, did you know that every single episode of Curious is now on Spotify? Yeah, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to our show, search for Curious, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now, and now, and now. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, Danny said something to the effect of he's like, especially with comedy, he's yeah. like, if something is written and there's a obvious way to do it, you can rest assured we've seen that probably 20 times. He said, but then also sometimes he's like, I can't believe that I've written something like what I believe is a simple rhythm of a joke that nobody has fucking hit. Yeah. All for six hours of auditions. So he's like, while you do want to have your own original spin on it, like make sure you're achieving the beats that are requested from the I, writer. I think that's right. I mean, it, and it's it's each their own. Like I don't mind when actors change my verbiage if it makes it funny or makes it natural. You know, um, pinpoint. If you're right, Danny, and Danny's right. Like my wife's an actor and she works pretty consistently and so I'm constantly the guy that in the morning like will you run this once with me so I can memorize the lines kind of thing and I always, I always tell her like you don't have to be so pinpoint precise on the dial at least for me but other people are but like for me like um, it's more important that the person be bringing something fresh and original to it than they'd be hitting every word right this isn't we're not shooting this right now you know I could after the fact when I see that I like you I could say hey try and hit that line more exact if, if that was something that was important to me yeah so for me it's a really confidence coming in with a take I'm always blown like if somebody comes in on a comedy and does something really bizarre and comedic that I haven't seen before even if it's completely wrong I will normally say that was the weirdest most interesting, bizarre thing. It doesn't work at all. Let's see you do it more normal. But like, I, I always appreciate people doing something. Yeah. Um, it's an impossible thing to give too much guidance for because it just, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like I remember my first TV show, the kid who got the lead part on this WB kid, a 16 year old kid had never acted before. He subsequently, I heard after that, soon after left and became a doctor, went back to med school. And Smart. Doctor. He got and I remember out. he came in, he was so charismatic and charming, he had no idea what was going on. And he came in and he walked into the room of 20 people at a network test and just walked up to everybody when he walked in the room and started introducing, shaking hands and introducing, as opposed to just walking in, taking his spot in the front of the room, reading the part and walking out like everybody else. He walked in with a big, hey, everybody. And he walked in, he was like, hey, hey. And now that could have gone terribly wrong. Totally. He pulled it off with the charm and it was the right room where it got him the part before he even started reading. And like, but like, I would never necessarily advise it, nor would I not advise it. It's just got to be truthful and confident to who, what you are and who you bring in. And are you the director that will, if, if the performance just isn't there, that you'll sit and dissect it with an actor? Or do you prefer to just be like, I cast the right person. I don't, I don't want to have to get in there and massage this with my actor. <sighs> I mean, I usually... I mean, it doesn't hurt when you got I, Pacino yeah, and Annette Bening and I, Oscar I haven't Isaac. really ever had to do very much of that on stuff that I'm the lead writing or directing voice of. Like, I think my... The, 
I mean, we did a film together. Like, it's typically I'll be like, hey, like, give me one faster. Give me one, like, let's try not to cheat. So I want to cheat you over a little, you know, bit. But like, I don't know. I tend to cast actors who I've seen read who get it. And like, so I kind of like, I don't like to micromanage performance or chase line readings. Like, you don't metaphor it, which is a kill. Like, there are certain directors where like, it's like that first love. I'm like, no, 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 I can't. Just tell me to make it happier. Yeah. Like, be direct with me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always better. I think like that, that's good advice for actors too. Like the same way that actors want advice, want directors to be confident and have a plan and be direct is almost what directors want from actors. Like show who you, and in addition, it's like show who you are. If small talk is natural, then sure. Make a moment of small talk. If it's not natural, then come in and you're the type of actor who comes in, doesn't say anything and fucking knocks it out of the park. But like, like don't try and be something or not be something or right. over explain or under explain like just do what's natural and it th- that energy does come through when people do it you know be more yourself yeah i think so like you're a lovely winning guy i wouldn't necessarily think that you're somebody that has to kind of walk into a room and be like an ice cold stone killer i think you probably walk in say hello your kind of energy yeah. comes through and that's going to be appealing to people i like I think if you were doing a really, really dark drama and breaking against type, I don't know if you would do the same thing or not, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend against it either, you know? So I don't want to keep you all day. So my last question is, and this is what I ask on everyone on the podcast, what are your two or three or five Dan Fogelman commandments that you would instill, not necessarily artistically, but overall your um, truths for your life that you would want to instill on someone else. Yeah. Hmm. I would say, uh, I'm thinking. Yeah. I would say, I mean, they're only commandments. No big deal. <laughs> I think that people are, is it a lot? It's not quite a concise one, but I would say, uh, it's not, it's, because it's not very hard to be like kind or generous, you'd be surprised at how little things go such a long way for people in like everyday life. And especially in our business that we work in, uh, a reply to an email, a gesture where you write to somebody, Hey, I really liked X scene that you wrote. You know what I mean? Um, it takes literally like, you could devote a half hour of your day on email to people in your personal and professional life. That would be, frankly, it could be 10 minutes and you would get so much, it would do so much for so many people with such little effort on your part that I think I'm not, I never understand why people don't do it more. You know, I try and write our crew a note when we accomplish something or do something that goes out to crew and it's meaningful to them. It doesn't take a lot of my time and I mean every word of it, but I'm surprised constantly that that is so rare for them to receive because it's such a not difficult thing to do. And it's so easy to compliment them because they're really good at their jobs. And so like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I, yeah. that, that, like everybody's like, Oh, you're a nice person. You're a mensch. Like they say to you, I'm like, I'm not really, it's, it's not that hard. It's, it seems harder to be a dick. The second part of it, which is the frustrating part of the human condition is that the byproduct of it is it does often lead to massive headaches for you, right? Yeah. When you're trying to be nice because give somebody an inch, they'll try and take a mile because it's the, it's human nature. And on the other side is like, 
it's not always an effective way of leading. Like, because when somebody, when you do need to be a little heavier with people, when you do need work to become better, people can't handle critique from you because they don't recognize that muscle in you. So it feels bigger than it is when you're just saying, Hey, but you need to be in to work on time. That is like tear inducing yeah. because you're trying to always be a nice guy. And sometimes because you've almost falsely tried to be so nice that like do it part of your job of managing and stuff can be a little bit difficult. Um, so that would be one. I think another one would be trying to turn off and make time for things in life besides whatever the main thing is that drives you. For some people, it can be an obsession with wife or children, which are beautiful things to have obsession about. For other people, it could be work. For other people, it can be sports or whatever they're into, is trying to kind of free yourself from your addictions in that, in that way so that your life becomes balanced. And it's, it's both an edict of my life and also something I'm constantly failing at. You know, so um, I think that would be another one. Be nice to your parents, as nice as you possibly can. Um, sorry, mom, <laughs> just in general and not for anything in particular. No, just... And I think making time for people like uh, what's that thing people say? Like you'll never regret X. Like you'll never die regretting. I forget what X. you did. You'll regret what, what you yeah, didn't do. But, like I do find like, man, sometimes like our existences are so, uh, easily held on our phone and behind our laptops and like almost everything feels unnecessarily exhausting to kind of get up and do because you don't really have to yeah in some way postmates culture yeah postmates culture but like so like we just took a trip to visit our family both of our families my wife's family and my family it could not have been a worse time for these trips to have been scheduled i am at inarguably the three most intense weeks of my career which Terminal has been a busy velocity. career yes we're going first to Erie, Pennsylvania to see both sides of my wife's family, then to Connecticut to visit my family. It's tons of flights with multiple connections because of the weird cities we're traveling to. It is a week of time when I just cannot afford to be away from work. And every part of you is going like, what am I doing? Going into this, how can I do this? Why am I doing this? But it was such a lovely week to be able to spend with our families, even though they all, everyone's nuts in different ways and there's all kinds of dynamics. Like, And you're like, God, it would have been if somebody had given me just the hint of an out, like, you know what, Dan, like truly, and we know how busy the time this is. Why don't we reschedule this and do it another time? We'd understand. I probably would. And my wife had been on board with it. I probably would have snapped it up. Sure. And, but I'm so glad nobody did that because like once I got there and got through the flights, like I was so glad to have been there. And so I think part of it is like kind of powering through like, Oh man, I don't want to drive to the west side right now to see my four buddies who I haven't seen in a while. But once you go and get down to your buddies who I haven't connected with, like life is short and I just lost a buddy. And like you got to do those things, even though it's so much easier to hole up and watch the Shaws of Sunset and, and dance bombs. You know marathon. what I mean? And like, right. so like that's the, that's, I think that's a big one. Um, thank you for doing this. Are you kidding? It's my pleasure. I love talking to you. Bobby, first of all, I always love talking to you, even when we have microphones. Oh my God. I'm honored. Um, life itself, just to give the listeners some insight, I got to go to a very cool people screening that you set up and you know, you weren't privy to the conversations at the valet as we left, but it was some very, very powerful, cool people that you'd want to meet. Um, just waxing poetic about how great the movie is, how talented you are, and it's nothing I didn't already know. Aw, thank you, buddy. Thank you, man. All right, thanks, Josh. Awesome. Bye. That was it. 
Dan Fogelman, that happened. You listened. Good for you. Good for me. Good for us. Life itself. Watch that shit. September 21st. You'll love it. Anyway, guys, have an incredible week. You're already having an incredible week, and I believe in you. And I'm not BSing. This is real talk. If you need someone to tell you that you're doing all right today, let that be me. You're doing incredible, and you're enough. Yeah. And yeah, maybe, yeah, I hear you haters. There's a couple haters out there, and you're driving in your fucking hatchback on the freeway going like, this jerk, what is he talking about? Like, what? What is he, sentimental right now? Like, stop talking, Josh, it's enough. And you know what? I am going to stop talking because you're right, it is enough. But what you're wrong about is that I'm not entitled to tell my beautiful listeners, the people whom I love, that they're the dopest. That they are quite enough. That they are more than enough. We all are. We gotta be. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know what I mean? So, if you hit your goal today, dope. And if you got close to your goal today, great. And if you didn't get anywhere near your goal or didn't even try today, that's alright. Just make it to tomorrow. And you'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) Oh my god. I think this is going to be one of those pods that I listen back to. I'm going to be like, what state of mind was I in for this one? I know, guys. I'm, you're not alone in those thoughts. I'm, I'm feeling them, too. Anyway, have a great week. Okay, love you. Bye.